All right. Folks are still streaming in. Um, if uh, My name's Glenn Hoberg. I'm one of the pastors here in the network. And if this is your first week to winter term, welcome. If this is your second week, congratulations, you've advanced to the second level. And uh, you'll find your way through the maze as Pastor Russ leads us. One of the reasons that I love winter term is because I love being taught by these men. And I mean that with all sincerity. I, I wish I could sit under their teaching every week. Um, last week, uh, you know, as we were sitting there and Meg, my wife, was with me, she was just eating it up and eating it. This, this is the best stuff ever, you know. And uh, I was like, amen, it is. So I'm glad that you're here. I know you're going to be blessed. This is one of the things we do, as I said last week, um, as you think about, well, why, what's this network thing? And we want to get better at communicating that. One of the benefits of this is we do stuff like that. Wait, one of the benefits of... Did that even make sense? You all understood what I meant, right? This and that. One of the benefits of the network is the that, is we do things like this, which is winter term. All right. Well, that's enough, I think, from me. So why don't I pray, and we're going to let Pastor Russ do it, too. And he'll probably want to pray after me. I noticed Duke last week prayed after me as if my prayer was kind of like a dud. I thought I had prayed, but he was obviously not convinced that that was a prayer. So uh, let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be here. I thank you for these friends and their faith coming out after a day of work, or maybe not a day of work, and a uh, day of anxiety about no work, or um, cold weather and all the things that occupy us that um, oftentimes make us forget the eternal and make us forget you. Thank you for this time. Your word's alive. It's living. It's food. It's light. And you dwell in it. And thank you, too, for Pastor Russ's preparation. In Christ's name, amen. amen. Thank you, my brother. Good evening, boys and girls. Let's see if I can get this thing to work. Yes. Before we start any study of theology, it's important for us to be reminded of why it is that we study theology. We study theology not just to be smarter sinners. We study theology, uh, all theological inquiry is for the purposes of doxology. And doxology is just a, a word that, that ref refers to glorifying God. That's why we study theology. J.I. Packer said, any theology that does not lead to song is at a fundamental level a flawed theology. And what he's saying is that the exercise of our minds is to put us into the service of God and love to God and communion with God and delight in God. So the early church, their refrain was faith-seeking understanding, starting from a position of faith, but seeking to grow in our understanding of what it is that the scriptures teach, how you put it together, and what the concerted voice of the church should be on matters of life and doctrine. So 
We're all familiar with this idea, right? That in our cultural moment, when people use the word God, there are many things that they mean, right? There are almost as many um, intentions when people use the word God as there are you, uh, people, right? So uh, some people refer to God as, you know, a, a benign, grandfatherly, distant presence. Some people as an impersonal force or a higher power. And, and what I'm, I'm getting at is this. There's a general lack of clarity when it comes to the way that people talk about and think about what God is like. Do you notice that people are comfortable shooting from the hip when it comes to God? Anyone notice that? Social media? People just, no, 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 that can't be. You know, like, like, like people are very opinionated uh, armchair theologians. We hear people make assumptions about what God is like what God would or wouldn't do. And if you were to really press someone on why they think God is like that, the brutally honest answer would be, because that's the way I want God to be. And Christians aren't immune to that. We all are prone to try and press God into what we want God to be. To expect from God what we want from God, rather than what God has promised to be and give to us. And so here's the deal. The Christian faith teaches us that there is absolutely nothing more important than knowing God, not as we want God to be, but as God truly is. And sometimes those line up and sometimes they don't. The Christian faith also teaches that our conclusions are not to be drawn from guesswork or the fashionable ideas of the age, but from the authoritative scriptures. God has revealed himself, his plans, and his ways in the world. And in scripture, oh, I'm tripping. Wait. Thank you, help me. <laughs> Mea culpa. <laughs> We're gonna make sure you can help, help keep me straight. In scripture, here's the deal. God presents himself to be loved. And by loving, we know him. And knowing the Trinity is what Athanasius simply called theology. The church fathers, when they talked about theology, what was wound into that was love and the ethical life, the moral life of discipleship. Theology, as it was intended by early Christians, is practiced love for and communion with God. And it's only later that theology became something academic, exclusively cognitive, scholastic, sterile, and seemingly impractical. That's where the disjunction between the practical and the theological came from. But the church historically has always understood this, this, this has always held this idea that doing theology involves the life of discipleship. It's mind and body in social encounter with others in the world. And so I'm saying all this not to teach abstractly, but to remind us about the context in which we should hear these teachings, the context in which we should reflect on this theology, not to just satisfy curiosity, but to be shaped, to be formed, to encounter God, even in this moment. Anytime we approach theology, it's a holy thing. It's a holy thing because in that moment, God can strike in the most profound and beautiful ways. And I want us to expect that. And we're going to think biblically 
about Christology. Tonight we're talking about the states of Christ for the purposes of love and communion. It would be a terrible shame for us to have a deeper grasp on academic Christology and to become no more like Christ. That would be a failed theological experience. That would be a failure of this evening. If you come out of here and really didn't learn anything, but had your heart warmed, that would be a victory. That would be a victory to begin to live more of what you already know. And so that's what my goal is tonight. And we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to walk through this outline. Pretty simple outline, right? We're going to do an overview of the states of Christ. We're going to do the textual foundations. We're going to hit the details of the states, humiliation and exaltation. And then we're going to wrap it up with a conclusion where we start to draw out implications, some of the so what's of this study of the states of Christ. Okay? If you have questions, raise your hand. Just jump in. This is, I want this to be interactive. We will take a break at 8 o'clock, okay? And you'll get refreshed, and then we'll come back in, and we'll close it out. Here's the deal. The states of Christ. People began to refer. Yes, that'd be awesome. Thank you. My man. You press down to advance it. It's counterintuitive, as they say. (laughs) Ready? People began to refer to the states of Christ during the Reformation period. It was called the status duplex. Someone say status duplex. Drop that at your next dinner party. They're going to be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Pastor Mike next week is going to talk about the munis triplex, the, the three offices, all right? But they started to talk about the status duplex, the two states of Christ during the Reformation period. And it had its origin with Lutheran theologians. But soon... The Reformed theologians kind of jumped on and began to give greater textual, textual warrant and clarity. They sharpened it when they got a hold of it. But what are we talking about when we talk about the two states of Christ? Here's what we're saying. Plainly stated, there is a state of humiliation and a state of exaltation. Now, here's the deal. By state, we mean not only a situation or circumstance but also primarily a judicial position. It's meant to communicate or express forensic relationship that one sustains to the law, okay? That's what the states of Christ are really about. It's not really about the surrounding circumstances as much as it's about the legal status, state, status. So when you think of the two states of Christ, we're thinking about the relationship of Christ to the law and his humiliation, and the relationship of Christ to the law and his exaltation. For example, you could have the state of being guilty, but the circumstance of being incarcerated. The greater weight of focus when we talk about the states of Christ has to do with guilty rather than incarcerated, okay? So we're talking about in his humiliation and his exaltation, Everything that was uh, accrued to Christ or experienced by Christ with relationship or respect to the law. In his humiliation, he was under the law. In his exaltation, free from the law. 
And those are the two major differences that have massive implications, okay? The key is how the mediator legally stands before the father in these two states as federal head or legal representative. And this is something important theologically, that Christ represents us. And what is true for Christ becomes true for his people. And this matters because every person is either in Adam or in Christ. Okay? Here's the deal. We recognize this as just normal in so many other circumstances. A lot of people don't like the idea that in Adam, I am a sinner. But there are two legal representatives, according to the scriptures. Everyone is either in Adam or in Christ. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. Okay? Also, Romans, or also 1 Corinthians 15. It says, in Adam all die, but in Christ. There are two options. And, and this is what it's like. Think about it like this. If you go to a Washington Wizards basketball game, and one of the players commits a foul, who gets penalized? All of the Wizards. Well, what if one of them got up and said, well, I didn't foul that dude. It doesn't matter. You're on the team. And what he does counts for you. In the same way, Adam, what he did counted for us. That's the bad news. The good news is for God's people, what, what, what Christ did counted for us. All right? So this begins to have real practical ramifications. In his state of humiliation, Christ was under the law as a rule of life and as the condition of the covenant of works. Now, what's the covenant of works? The covenant of works was when life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon the condition of perfect and personal obedience. Now, Christ is under the law as a rule of life and as a condition of the covenant of works. And in his humiliation, Christ is under the condemnation of the law, the culmination of which was his bearing of our sin in his body on the cross under the just wrath of God. That's Christ and his humiliation. In his state of humiliation, this is where he stands relative to the law. He's under the obligations of the law for his life. He's under the obligations of the law for the covenant of works. And he's under the obligations of the penalties for breaking the law. That's where he stands, under the law. But in his state of exaltation, he is free from the law. You might even say supralegal, above the law. Having met the condition of the covenant of works, which was perfect and personal obedience. And having paid the penalty for covenant breaking. He has been vindicated, having passed from under the law in its federal and penal aspects and from under the burden of the law as the condition of the covenant of works. It's thick right now. We're going to thin it out. We're going to juice this thing. All right. So just hang on. And from under the curse of the law as mediator, he entered into possession of the blessings of salvation, which he merited for sinners. He was crowned with a corresponding honor and glory as a judicial result of his humiliation. Now, in his state of humiliation, here's the deal. He obtained righteousness for his people. And in his state of exaltation, he applies righteousness to his people. 
Those are the practical implications. He wins it in his humiliation and applies it in his exaltation. At every stage in the progression of his humiliation. It's not just a flat humiliation. It goes ever and ever lower. And in his exaltation, when it turns around, he goes ever and ever higher. And each stage of the progression, we can discover the rich significance, the benefit, and the comfort that it presents for our lives. We can, each stage provides new angles. It's like, it's like twisting the diamond and getting new gleams. That's what happens when we begin to dig into the two states of Christ. And again, we must note that at each stage of his humiliation and exaltation, that this was done for us. For us. This is how Robert Shaw puts it. Christ was not originally a debtor to the law, but he voluntarily came into a state of subjection to it as the surety of sinners. Any of y'all attorneys know what a surety is? Any, a pledge, someone who takes care of the legal obligations of another. He became our surety. He satisfied the legal obligations that we had. And he both fulfilled its precept and endured its penalty. All his obedience and sufferings as the subject of law were in no respect for himself, but entirely in the stead of his people. And by his service, the law was not merely fulfilled, but magnified and made honorable. Robert Shaw wrote an exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And this comes from, from that book. What are we talking about here, though? Here's the visual, all right? The left side is the humiliation in the various degrees or stages of his humiliation. It begins with the incarnation. It advances to the sufferings of Christ, the death and the burial of Christ, his descent into hell. And then it turns around in the resurrection, the ascension, the session, and the parousia, okay? These are the two states of Christ visually depicted. And you notice the movement down, up, the descent, and the ascent. Okay. Any questions up right up till now? Anybody? All right. Parousia is a Greek word for the coming, the return of Christ. The, the parousia, the parousia is going to be when Christ is visibly returned in glory, okay? And we're going to get into the specifics of each of these, okay? But first, I want to get into the textual foundations, because here's the deal. <clears throat> we must grow our theology out of the authoritative scriptures, okay? And so every time we do this kind of work of theology, we do our best to try and show you that it has textual roots, and it grows out, and that's the way we begin to put things together. So where in the scriptures do we see this idea of the, of the two states of Christ? We begin with the locus classicus, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he existed in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. There's the language of humiliation, okay? 
by becoming obedient. Obedience is legal oriented, all right? It's legally oriented. It's forensic. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Do you see the language of humiliation and exaltation? You see it? Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, check it. This is the classic text for establishing the two states of Christ. The contextual situatedness of the text is ethical. Paul is writing to get some disagreeing people to agree. They got to they got to have the same mind, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. Let this mind be among you. If you you were going to do an interpretive translation of what's happening in the Greek text, he calls out to the Philippians, he said, let this mind be among you, which is yours in union with Christ Jesus, who, though he existed In the form of God, he did not count his equality with God. Now, let's break this down, okay? When when biblical commentators get into this text, this, this question right here about counting his equality with God a thing to be grasped, okay? Is it something that he doesn't have that he's reaching for? Or is it something that he possesses and he's clutching it? It's the difference between res rapta and res rapienda, okay? A thing to clutch after or a thing to grasp after or a thing to clutch. And, And the right way to understand it is he did not count his equality with God as something to clutch. But what did he do? He emptied himself. Now, Duke talked about the kenosis, the kenotic theory last week. But let me give you a very clear way of understanding what the kenosis was all about. Look at the text. He emptied himself means by taking. You see, the incarnation, it's always about addition, not subtraction. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. In the incarnation, there is no subtraction. Becoming what he was not and not ceasing to be what he always was. That's the language of the old school cats who formulated and crystallized these doctrines. He never ceased to be what he was, but he took on what he was not. Now, that might sound like, oh, what's the point of that theology? Look, do you see how relevant this is? If you are going to be like Jesus, you must allow your existence to be permanently altered for the sake of love. There's no such thing as following this Jesus and saying, Why do I have to change in order to love them? Why do I have to become what? It's not natural. It's just just not me. It's like the love of Christ in the gospel, in the incarnation. It's all about this idea that we become what we are not out of love for the other. We become something more beautiful, more compelling. Because this very day, January 17th, 2019, Jesus Christ sits at the right hand of the Father as a human being. He was not always a human being, but his existence was altered because of love. That is what drives us to love across the borders, across the boundaries, people who aren't like us. Think about it. All of our excuses. Well, we're just 
We don't have anything in common. You know, we're just not, you know, I don't know. We just, don't, you know, what do we have to share? I mean, we're just so different. Could you picture all of your, all of your excuses are dashed in the incarnation. You imagine Jesus saying, Father, we're just, we have nothing in common. I'm holy, they're not. I'm righteous, they're not. I'm glorious, they're turds. You know, like, what? There is nothing like, like, uh, there's no likeness. But he doesn't allow our failure to be like him to stop him from moving toward us. That is good news. And that's what it means to be made like Jesus. We've been hearing since the very beginning of our Christian lives that the goal that God is out to, to, to fulfill is to make us like Christ. It just seems that sometimes we aren't doing the math right. We're not adding all up what that means. <laughs> right? All right. I'm, I'm, let me keep going. I, I'm, I'm riffing. Okay. Notice the doctrinal appeal. Paul is trying to get them to change as a result of this doctrinal idea of the descent and ascent of Christ. There's the language of humiliation and exaltation. And there's a legal or forensic flavor. Verse 8, becoming obedient. All right. And notice verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. It's his vindication, his approval, his, the satisfaction of, of the legal requirement. He's being vindicated for that. And now he's being coronated. It says, at the name of Jesus. <clears throat> now, look, what's the name? It's not Jesus. It's Lord. Okay? The name of Jesus is Lord. That, that's the personal name of God in the Old Testament. Okay? All right. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Listen to this for the two states. Okay? For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You hear humiliation, exaltation? You hear it? Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now, the lowering or humiliation and crowning with glory or exaltation motif is again present in this text. And what, what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's leveraging Psalm 8. He's quoting Psalm 8 in which the psalmist is, is having a little devotion time. He goes out on one starry night and he looks up and he sees the vastness of the universe and he's overwhelmed and he says, Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth who has set your glory above the heavens, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. What is man that you are mindful of him? 
that you take notice of him, the son of man that you care for him. And the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on this. And when he looks at Christ, he's not looking up at the stars. He's looking at Jesus, the one who was made lower for a little while. And he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? We look at Jesus and see this. He, for a little while, is made lower than the angels. See, the, the context of this passage here is with specific reference to the salvific trailblazing and high priesthood of Jesus. He's the trailblazer, the archegos. He cuts the pathway through death into glory so that we can follow behind him. And he's also the high priest. For a little while was made lower in the Greek text. That's fronted. And that's one of the ways that you emphasize something in the Greek text. It was just for a little while, but he flipped it. And now he's glorified. He's exalted. And the reason why the writer of Hebrews is leaning more on the exaltation is because the people he's writing to are tempted to give up their faith and go back to something else. Notice in the text too, for it was fitting that he, who's he? God the Father. For it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was a perfect match, it was key in luck that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Suffering is part of the humiliation, right? Perfect here has a functional significance. The emphasis falls on the notion that Christ was fully equipped for his office as mediator through his humiliation, his submission to and fulfillment of the law. God qualified Jesus to come before him in priestly action. He perfected him as a priest of his people through his sufferings, which permitted him to accomplish his redemptive mission and carry out his mediatorial work. Do you see the uniqueness of Jesus here? If even Jesus, it took all of that life as it was lived, and it took his death and his person giving value to the work, it, it took all of that for him to be perfected as a high priest. You think if it took all of that for Christ to become perfected as a high priest, that anyone else is going to fit the bill? That there's any salvation in any other place? You see, the uniqueness of Christ, the exclusivity of Christ, is not just Christians playing defense and being afraid and, and, and being um, um, closed-minded or unexposed to what's going on in global faiths. No, it rests upon a rich theological heritage that grows out of what the scriptures say about who Jesus is. There ain't nobody like him. And the only reason why his work is what it is is because his person is what it is. That's why Duke spent so much time talking about Jesus as fully God, fully man, one person, two natures. And how that happens. He's unique as the God man. There's nobody like him. And because there's nobody like, them, like him, there's nobody who can do what he has done. The work of Christ. He had to be God. Why? Because if his work was to have any value, he had to be God and he had to be man. Why? Because if he was going to represent us, if he was going to stand in our place, if he was going to bail us out, if he was going to perform in our place, he had to be like us. One theologian said this when it when it comes to the divinity of Christ, the next thing less than infinite is infinitely less. The next thing less than infinite is infinitely less. Sin came into the world through a man. 
Sin had to be taken away through a man. Since through a man born of a woman, sin and ruin entered into the world, the old school church father said, so it was through a man born of a woman that sin had to be taken away, had to be cured. And what he did not assume, he could not heal. He had to be fully man, right? That's also the church fathers. If he didn't take it on, he couldn't heal it. So he had to take on everything that is true to our humanity, accepting sin, in order to heal us. Okay. Galatians 3, and I'm going to read right after this, Romans, uh, I think it's chapter 8. Yeah. All right. I just, I'm reading these. I'm only going to comment briefly on the two of these put together, but these are hitting at the legal or forensic element of the states of Christ. This is, just listen to it, right? Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Listen. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Legal. You see? The humiliation of Christ is about him being born under the law. Romans 8, 1 through 4 and verse 11. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You see the emphasis here, the law. We're under the law. If he was to free us, he had to come and, and take on that status of being born under the law and taking it up for us. There are clear legal and forensic forces in these texts. We were held captive under the law. God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law and set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law could not do by sending his son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. You see it? You hear it. This is the, it's these texts and others 
that serve as the foundations for this doctrine and how we put it together. Because here's the thing, it's going to help us to draw down on this doctrine, specifically relative to states, more than circumstances. Because here's the thing, if you simply observe the circumstances of the life of Christ, it doesn't necessarily give you an interpretive grid for understanding what happened. It's just like multiple reporters showing up at an event and coming out with vastly different stories. What we have is apostolic interpretation of what happened in the conditions in which Christ lived. And it has to do with his legal status, his execution of the law, living under the law as a rule of life, living under the law as a covenant of works to bring life to his representatives and bearing the curse of the law. That is the interpretive grid that helps you to understand what was happening in the circumstances of Jesus' life. That's the only way you get clarity on what it really meant. Do you understand what it meant for Christ to suffer his whole life long? It's not just a, oh man, that's rough. Well, it was just an intermission until he got to the cross. No, you got to understand the weight, the piling up of the sufferings of Christ. With respect to the law, why? What does it mean to you that your Savior is incorruptible for all of his life, incorruptible? By the time you get home to your house tonight, you will have sinned so grievously it would warrant an eternity of God's judgment. And all his life long from the time he was wee high to the time that he was nailed to the cross, never once did he allow a mean tweet to get him out of the spirit. I know I'm preaching to somebody up in here. Where's Pastor Duke at? You know what I'm saying? The trolls couldn't take him off of God's plan. He didn't allow any children to get him out the spirit. I know I'm talking to somebody off in here. No, they probably all home whooping the kids right now. You know, you see what I'm saying? That is astonishing. And the more and more it piles up on him without him failing. Without him falling through, without him giving in, it, the pressure builds and builds and builds. And you need to know that your salvation hung upon the rock-solid faithfulness and obedience of Jesus Christ. That is good news. And that should cause you to marvel at him. And when he calls out to you and says, do this and live, you do it willingly, joyfully, with delight because of who he is. That's it. We're going to get into it for real, for real. But this helps us to draw down on the forensic and and helps us to develop the significance of what we witness in the circumstantial realities of Jesus Christ. All this, friends, is interpretive. It's interpretive. That's important. Any questions up to this point? Go ahead, sister. I'm a little amazed by what you said about Christ suffering for his whole life. Mm. I've never heard that before. Yeah. You... We're going to get into that. So that's going to be, so that was the overview. So what we're going to do is we're going to get into the details and we're going to take, take each one of the four stages in the humiliation and each one of the four stages in his exaltation and we're going to unpack each of those and try to develop them just a bit, okay? So I'm coming for you. Let's start, with, uh, let's start with humiliation 
and we'll break in 10 minutes. Incarnation. Okay. Some of this you're familiar with already. Maybe all of it you're familiar with. But the, the humiliation of Christ begins with the incarnation. And what you need to appreciate is the active, the agency in it. The, to be born is one thing. To incarnate is another. His agency, his willing entrance into the world. The incarnation is God fulfilling his promise to dwell with his people as Emmanuel. He came as near to us as was possible. Do you hear me? He came as near as was possible in existence. There was no way for him to get closer. And he came all the way. He is as proximate as is possible to humanity. So desirous is he of dwelling with his people that it wasn't enough to pitch a tent in the middle of the camp. It wasn't enough to show up in the pillar of cloud in the fire by night. It wasn't enough for him to fill the glory cloud with the, the tabernacle with the glory cloud and to show up on Mount Sinai rumbling and thundering and lightning in his holy glory. That wasn't enough. He wanted to be so near to us that he was willing to descend to take on the form of one of his creatures. The Lord has always been near to his people, but the incarnation was a new nearness. An, uh, an unseen nearness. He's nearer to us than we are to ourselves. The assumption of our weakness, vulnerability, and mortality, allowing his existence to be permanently altered, is God coming scandalously close through his own agency. And also notice this. That you can't talk about an incarnation where there is no pre-existence. If you're talking incarnation, you're talking one who existed before then. Pre-existent, i.e. he's God. The incarnation was the necessary condition for Christ's legal representation and high priestly ministry. You see, he couldn't become a high priest for us without coming in the flesh. He specifically took on human flesh so that he could be our great high priest. Listen to what Nordman says. The son of God needs his human nature to be able to immerse himself in sin and death, to cover and destroy them in the sight of God. This is how he's our mediator. Romans 5, verses 12 through 21. It was always God's plan to exercise his royal authority through a righteous covenant-keeping humanity. That was God's plan, A. And when humanity willingly surrendered that royal reign on God's behalf in the world, God went to plan B. And you know what plan B was? See plan A. I will rule the world through a human royal representative. And his name shall be called Jesus. And he will save his people from their sins. The sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ involve much more than human witnesses observed. Throughout his life, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That's what Isaiah says. He suffered much from men, not only from avowed enemies, but also from pretended friends and even from his own disciples. He was also assailed by Satan's temptations. But besides what he endured by the agency of creatures, he suffered 
from the more immediate hand of God himself as a judge. It pleased the Lord to bruise him and to put him to grief. Now let's break this down. He suffered during his earthly life. It was the servant life of the Lord of hosts, the life of the sinless one in daily association with sinners. It was suffering. The holy one in a sin-cursed world. You, you realize we see the world through the eyes of sinful people and things that should bother us don't. And we can't see into the hearts of the people that walk around us. Even when they agitate us and we see them do egregious things and we hear about terrible things on the news. If you take every social media channel, every news outlet, every newspaper and you put all those things together You can't even begin to capture what it is that the son of God was able to see when he looked through the world. And guess what he was seeing when he witnessed it? Everything that he was going to have to bear. When he saw. Now, look, when I see someone commit a sin, I see something that they are going to have to pay for. But when when Jesus saw someone commit a sin, He saw something that he was going to have to pay for. When he was looking at his people, his disciples, how many things did he see? It's like when you take someone out to eat and they are oblivious and they're just running up the tab. You're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they just ordering this and that and the other thing. They ran up the tab on Jesus. His disciples and he watched. So when he saw sin, it wasn't just him observing something that broke his heart. He was observing something that would break his very self. Because God's judgment would fall on him on account of that. And he saw it all. There was there was nothing that he missed. He didn't miss any observable sins around him. And it just magnified for him. He was man of sorrows. Betrayed by one disciple, denied by another, and deserted by all. He suffered in body and soul. It was not the blind physical pain that constituted the essence of his suffering, but the pain accompanied with anguish of soul and with a mediatorial consciousness, which he was burdened with when facing the sin of humanity, which is what I was just describing. That was his mediatorial consciousness. Jesus knew he was the mediator. He knew he was going to bear the sins of his people. So when he saw them, that afflicted him. That that already initiated the suffering. He suffered from various causes. His daily association with sinners was an ever-present reminder of the weight of the guilt he would bear. He constantly saw them ringing up the tab. No expense escaped his notice. He was perfectly aware And carried the anticipation throughout his life that he was born to die as a substitute. And we get anxious before doctor's visits. And all his life he knew he was headed for the wrath of God. Listen, Jesus saw some scary things in his life. Jesus, you remember when when in the story of Jonah they were out on the boat and the sailors were bugging out because of the storm? You remember when Jesus was on the boat with the disciples and they were flipping out? Help us, Jesus. Help us, Jesus. We're going to drown out here, Jesus. Jesus was asleep in the boat, not afraid. Jesus saw demon-possessed people. That's scary. If you've ever been to a, a scary movie, a thriller movie, 
God forbid you saw something in like the exorcist, the exorcism of Emily Rose. I about lost my mind. Saw that movie. I was scared to death. Jesus saw real demon possessed people. He wasn't afraid. I'd be afraid. And so would you. If you saw somebody possessed by a demon, hey, how you doing? <laughs> like, you be like, oh, Jesus, no, Lord, Jesus. You'd be, running some, you'd be running off somewhere. You'd be terrified. Jesus saw a demon-possessed people, no fear. There is one time in all of the scriptures that you see Jesus afraid. And that is in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's contemplating the weight of God's wrath that's going to fall on him. And he says, Father, if there's any way that this cup can pass... Let it pass from me. And it's on him so heavy. He's so terrified that he's sweating drops of blood. And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's the only time that you see Jesus afraid. Why? Because that is the only truly terrifying thing that we could contemplate at the end of the day. When everything's considered in the big grand scope of things, that is the real terrifying reality. And that's what he knew was coming throughout his life. And to think about that, the way that weighed on him. If you ever struggled with anxiety or, or depression or anything like that, Jesus can sympathize. He all his life felt the pressing in on what his destiny would be. We can at least hope that things are going to get better, but he knew that they were going to get infinitely, eternally worse for him. That's what he was looking forward to, and that's why his sufferings were so rich. He was born to die as a substitute, and he knew the magnitude of what was coming. He lived in poverty and experienced the associated afflictions of those who were in poverty. He suffered in temptations and trials. There was nobody more demonically and satanically assaulted and tempted than Jesus. The demons knew who he was. They knew he was God's plan of salvation. That he was coming to undo the works of the devil. The de there was no screw tape letters for Jesus. Screw tape got fired. Satan was like, I'm taking this one personally. And he assaulted Jesus with everything he could. And we got just a taste of it in, the, in what, what's reported in the Gospels in, in the desert. That was just a little taste. That was all his life. He's assaulted by Satan himself, who remembered back when all of the creation happened. Who was there in He imagined the temptations. You're too glorious. They don't deserve you. Go back where you'll be praised with the myriad of angels, where they sing your name with ceaseless eye. They cover themselves because they recognize your royal dignity. And look at them. Not only are they not interested in you, they positively assault you and reject you. And some are trying to have you killed. Far be it from you. Imagine the temptations. Imagine after the the 158th time Peter did something dumb and Satan was just like, smoke him, smoke him, call down the angels and light us up. You know what I'm saying? Like, you imagine the temptations, right? No one was tempted like Jesus. No one. Judas ultimately filled, possessed by Satan, 
handed him over for money. The religious leaders handed him over for envy. But the father handed him over for love. That's a paraphrase of John Stott. Jesus suffered uniquely. Jesus was supernaturally sustained to endure sufferings more harsh and overwhelming than a normal human being could endure. Nobody could feel the poignancy of pain and grief and moral evil as Jesus could because nobody was more in touch with the way things were meant to be. Nobody could see the gap between the way that things were meant to be and the way that things actually are like Jesus. We think we understand the way things are supposed to be, but we see through a glass darkly. Jesus knew the glory that the world was made for. He saw the disparity between the way that things are and the way that things, the way that they're supposed to be. He knew. He saw that and how that tore at him, how that broke his heart, how that afflicted him. Because he knew just how far things had fallen and just how hot the anger of God would be in judgment upon the ruin of his glorious world. Jesus felt it like nobody else. He saw and felt the gap like no other. Jesus suffered at the hand of God. He sustained for a time the loss of the sensory expressions of the Father's love that he had known eternally. Think on that. He had eternally known the sensory expressions of the Father's love from eternity. And now the awful weight of God's judicial wrath on account of sin would crash upon him. And this lies behind his lament more than any of the physical affliction, though that was real and excruciating. It was, it was the sustained removal of the sensory ex experience of God's love that made him say, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even unto death. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, you should read that, that, that sentence with, with different emphases just to feel it. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You should love and delight in me. You should, you should commune with me, but you are forsaking me. Why would you forsake me? You could, you could emphasize forsake. You could also emphasize, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Me, the one who has lived with you since eternity past in perfect love and delight. Me, the one who is praised and worthy of all the praise from all the angels and heavenly beings. Me, your beloved son. Me. It should be them. Why have you forsaken me? He bore in a matter of hours, what would have taken an eternity to pour out on us. In a matter, such was the greatness of the person of Christ that he, in a matter of hours, could drain the cup of wrath that would have taken an eternity to pour out on us. What manner 
of man is this? And what, are, what is the nature of these sufferings? We have not even scratched the surface of what it means to say that Christ suffered and died for us. Think about it. Let's take a break. Let's bring it back. Let's bring it back. (laughs) You knew it was coming. Awake, O sleepers, rise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. All right, should we get going or wait for them? Call the slackers in, Joe. Call them in. Call them all in. Y'all come get these slides. All right, here we go. Death and burial is another stage in the progression of the humiliation of Christ. And here we have to remember that death is not merely a natural consequence of sin. Okay? Death is not merely a natural consequence of sin, but above all, the judicially imposed and divinely inflicted judgment of God. In Christ's judgment, this is crazy. Think about this. In Christ's judgment, all the attributes of God were furiously channeled and concentrated upon the punishment of the sin bearer. Think about that. All of the wrath of God, his, his holy anger and fury, all of the omnipotence of God, all of the power of God directed toward exacting upon him the judgment that is deserved by sinners, all of the jealousy of God, his holy rage, because God punishes him, the father punishes him for his offense against the spirit and the spirit pours out on him. For his offense against the father. Do you see that it's Trinitarian? So jealousy is, is part of what figures into the wrath poured out on him. And the love, that is again Trinitarian. All of this is, is channeled toward Jesus. Now here's the upshot. Because all of the attributes of Christ, all of the attributes of God were channeled toward exacting this, this judgment upon Jesus... It is now the good news that God can channel all of his attributes toward inflicting his goodness upon us. That's the good news. The intensity with which God prosecuted Jesus Christ in his judgment is inverse in the intensity with which God prosecutes his goodness and faithfulness on us. That's good news. Christ, the law keeper, is judged like a lawbreaker. More than separation of body and soul, God withdrew himself and his blessings of life and happiness, visiting on Christ the concentrated punishment deserved by countless sinners. Jesus is treated like a slanderer. He's treated like a rapist, a philanderer. He's treated as if he constructed 
Hitler's Gestapo, right? He's treated as if he has done any number of the foul things that any of us have done. That's how he's treated. Get specific. You can start to name. Now listen, you could fill, you could fill any number of notebooks with the record of your misdeeds. And so could I. And to think that Jesus took all of the misdeeds of all of his people through all of time. And he is carrying those, bearing those up, facing the wrath of God. That is an astonishing thing to think of. In his death, Christ exhausted inexhaustible wrath and extinguished the holy fury due to covenant breakers. Now, here's the deal. No natural death or accidental death could do, okay? It couldn't be an incarnation and Jesus died from natural causes. It couldn't be Jesus is born into the world and then, you know, he's assassinated. No, it was very intentional and purposeful and essential that his death be a judicial sentence. He had to be counted with the transgressors, condemned the criminal, and utterly dismantled under the weight of holy anger until the cup was empty. This is how Shaw put it. Though Christ had obeyed the precept of the law and endured the most exquisite sufferings in the course of his life, yet had he not submitted to death, all had been unavailing for our redemption. If Jesus had hit the eject button in Gethsemane, all of his sufferings would have, would have counted for nothing. He had to face the penal end of covenant breaking, which is death. Descent into hell. Now listen, I'm not going to show off academic kind of, let's run through all the various ways that people have understood the descent into hell. It's an ancient understanding of the church. That, that they, this is an article of faith, that Jesus descended into hell. Some, all right, I'll run through them. Some people, <laughs> some people look at the Bible and they think, they take certain passages and they think that after he died, Jesus went down to hell and he preached to the people in hell, giving them a second chance to come back, okay? Or to the people in purgatory, he preached. Some people think that that's, this is the first stage in his exaltation because he goes down and he preaches his triumph and starts talking junk to Satan and the devils. He's like, hey, I'm alive. What y'all want, suckers? Come on, get some of this. Who you think you're messing with? I will come jack you up. I'm coming for you. Like Jesus was down there talking junk, right? I like that idea. But <laughs> my Jesus, I like my Jesus talk a little bit of trash. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> All right. Some people say that his descent into hell um, was Jesus, ex he, he just experienced hell, the fullness of hell. So it was experiential. Jesus experienced what anyone who goes to hell and faces the wrath of God faces. That's what Jesus, that's what his descent into hell was. And others interpret it as when they, they, they take texts like Ephesians 4 and they say, you know, the descent, uh, when they talk about him descending to the lower parts of the earth, um, the genitive there is just, talk, it's just talking about the incarnation. So 
They say the descent into hell doesn't have textual grounding. My position in, in, in a classic Reformed uh, position, Calvin believed that the descent into hell signified that Jesus experienced hell, really and truly. Um, I think it just means really that, that Christ remained for a time in a state of death or in the realm of the dead. He knows what it means to be dead because he experienced it. But he was not abandoned to the power of death and he did not see corruption. And that's what the scriptures say. He did not abandon. You, you, you will not abandon my soul to the pit. That's Psalm 16, I believe. We can think of Christ descending to hell as a state of death in which he existed between his dying and rising again. This is the view of the Westminster Standards. He's our mediator here as well, bearing God's judgment upon sin to the very end in order to redeem us from it. This means that those who are united to him by faith need not fear death. Jesus absolutely transformed it. He kicked a hole in the back of death so that his people see death as a doorway. He's turned death into a butler that leads us to glory. That's it. Like he has utterly changed that. He has taken the stinger out of death. This is the way that death is. I had a mentor who used this illustration. You know, there are bees, right? Like when bees sting you, they leave their stinger in you. But they still live for a little while. And they'll fly around and all this kind of stuff, but they die eventually, right? Christ received the stinger when he died, but he took the stinger out of death. And even though the bee, it looks scary, it has no sting for the people of God. All right, let's get into details of the states of his exaltation. I always like this picture of Jesus because it looks like he's about to ninja kick Paul. Like, he's like this. He's like, Paul, I heard you've been persecuting my people. What, you want to get some of this? Like, Jesus about to get some of that. Like, oh, get some of that. I like my Jesus that have a little kung fu fight in them too. You see, he got that finger lock, too. I, would, I, would, I like the Jesus who throws gang signs. He'd be like, you know what I'm saying? I like my Jesus that have a little bit of thug in him. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he ain't no sucker. All right. Sorry, y'all. It's late. I got to keep you going. Resurrection. The first turn toward from, from humiliation to exaltation is the resurrection. The resurrection is, as it were, the prism that brings to light the primary colors of Jesus' life, Runia. In the resurrection, we hear the Father's amen to the sons, it is finished. This is the Father saying, amen, rise, my son. It is finished. The work is completed. This is, look, this is the long Costco receipt that everything that Jesus purchased for us at the cross, infinite love, faithfulness, joy forevermore, adoption as children, everything that Jesus purchased, the father writes a little smiley face on him and lets him roll out. You see what I'm saying? This is what the resurrection is. The resurrection did not consist in the mere fact that he came back to life again and that, that his, his body would, would be reunited with his soul. Others were restored to life before him. Elijah raised the widow of Zarephath's son. Christ raised Lazarus before. Right? Like, the, the Jesus is not the first person to rise from the dead, as it were. But the resurrection of Christ is qualitatively different. It's eschatological. He's restored to more than it, than it was before. Having been confirmed 
in tested moral goodness, covenant fidelity, and legal righteousness, Christ rose to a nomadic bodily existence of uncompromisable perfection, incapable of decay, corruption, or improvement. Christ rose not as an independent person, but for his people. Now, let me go back to this. Pneumatic. I intentionally did not say spiritual because spiritual is overused today and it's meant to mean something ethereal. But what Christians should mean by spiritual is everything related to the Holy Spirit. Pneuma, pneumatic, is specifically referencing the Holy Spirit. His existence in his bodily form after the resurrection is pneumatic. He is the man of the spirit par excellence. And now bodily so in a new way. Uncompromisable perfection. Incorruptible. He cannot decay. There's no way to improve what he is, what he is existing as right now. Christ rose not as an independent person for himself, but he, in him we rose too. When Christ was raised, we were raised. Union with him, Ephesians. Okay? All right. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. That's what Paul thinks about the resurrection. That's how important it is. If you don't believe in a bodily resurrection of Jesus, stop wasting your time. This is not worth it. You can go find some moral pick-me-up somewhere else. The resurrection is absolute bedrock. If you, if you are working through the Christian faith, or you have a friend that's working through the Christian faith, Invite them to really wrestle with the stubborn fact of the resurrection. There is no other explanation for the Christian church than the resurrection. If you want a good resource, check out N.T. Wright's work, the big thick green book on the resurrection. Very strong, very strong. It's a great case for the, the resurrection as the anchor point for Christian faith. It's the stubborn fact of history, okay? Christ triumphed over death, which came into the world through sin. If he had merely escaped death, its power could have persisted. But our Savior abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This is the way you need to think about it. He didn't just escape death. The divine warrior attacked it with the weapons of righteousness in his humanity, he was able to submit to death. And in his divinity, he was able to conquer it. The resurrection is the great inbreaking of the kingdom of God. An eschatological incursion. It is like a flash forward for God's church and God's creation of what will be. It's the, you know how you have a flashback? This is a flash forward. That's what the resurrection is. It's, a, it's, it's like... It's like the astonishing glimpse of the future life. That's what the resurrection is. The ascension. Christ's higher life of glory, begun in the resurrection, was perfected in the ascension, and he ascended from earth to heaven according to his human nature before his disciples. Okay, that's what the ascension is. If you're unfamiliar with what the ascension is, it's about the story where Jesus gathers his disciples it's recorded in the end of Luke and also in the beginning of Acts, uh, where Jesus gathers his disciples together. 
And he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. He commissions them with the, with the mission and their calling in the world. And then it says that Jesus was just like, And he just floated away. And them dudes was like, <laughs> watching him go. Until he was covered with a cloud. And then all of a sudden, I think this is funny stuff. If you just read through the stories, this stuff is so funny. Men of Judea, they're like, oh my God, he's an angel. He's floating away, he's an angel. Like, you know, it's like crazy stuff. And what the angel says is, just as you saw him go. Now, I want you to see the visual, right? They knew that people were on earth and that God was in heaven, but now they're seeing someone in between the two who's going to bring the two back together again, who's going to reunite them. He told them before he was going to prepare a place for them. And what they see in the bodily ascension of Jesus is a human example of someone who's going to find entrance into heaven. Someone who's going to find entrance into the very throne room and sanctuary of God, of which the earthly was just a shadow. That's what they're going to see. And then the ascension, as they see, after they see somebody moving in between heaven and earth to reunite the two, the ascension results in Pentecost, the outpouring of the Spirit of Christ on the church of Christ. The ascension is a reminder that while the work of Christ is finished, his priestly ministry is not finished, okay? Jesus said, it is finished, but he didn't say, I am finished. He finished the, the work of, of mediation for the removal of sins. He, he satisfied and fulfilled the law, but his mediatorial work has not finished. He continues it to this very day. We are in union with Christ in his ascension according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. There's lots more to say about the ascension, but I want to get, I got limited time. We're going to keep rolling. Session, okay, is more than the gathering of the elders to do business for the church, okay? <laughs> Comes from the Latin word sessio, which means seated in authority, okay? Having ascended, Christ sits enthroned as royalty at God's right hand, which is the place of utmost honor and power. He reigns on behalf of the Father, his sovereignty is coextensive with the Father's. That means he has as much authority as the Father and his sovereignty as the Father. It's most evident of his kingly rule. But it's not just his kingly rule. It's his priestly work. His, he sits down and he's a priest forever. The session of Christ signifies that he rules the church through his appointed officers and he also rules the world through his providence. He's not just the Jewish Messiah. That's what the session says. He's not just the Jewish Messiah. He's the king of kings and Lord of lords. He's not just the king of Israel. He's the king of all creation. He's the king of the universe. But he's also a priest forever, carrying on his work as mediator in heaven. This is what it says in Hebrews. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Christ is continually presenting 
his completed sacrifice before the Father on behalf of his accused saints. Now you might say, why is that necessary? Does the Father not remember when he looks to his right that he, he was slain for our sins? You got to remember that the reason why Jesus continues to represent us day and night is because we are accused day and night. Satan's primary ministry is not just temptation, it's accusation. And where does he accuse us? Read Zechariah 3. Satan shows up hanging around God's house, trying to accuse the people of God before the Father. And every time Jesus steps up and he says, I am the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. I paid for that sin at Calvary. And Father, I'm interceding on their behalf. And I plead the merits of my blood for that sinful soul that you would not count it against them because I paid it all. That's what he does. He takes our little jacked up prayers. And he says, Father, let me interpret that for you. This is what they wanted. You said, Lord, make me more patient. Father, what they want is children. You know, like, you see what I'm saying? <laughs> That's a joke, y'all. It's a joke. Lord, I just want to be more holy. Father, what they need is a difficult person to work with on a job. That's what, that's what they're going to need to get that. You see what I'm saying? He's translating that, and he's, he's fixing up our prayers to present them according to the will of the Father, and, and the Lord always hears him. Okay? But Christ also continues his prophetic work through the Holy Spirit. Before he left his disciples, he promised them the Holy Spirit to aid them in remembering everything that he had taught them, to lead them into all truth, to teach and guide them, and to enrich and equip them. The promise was fulfilled at Pentecost, and Scripture was inspired and penned, and officers are called, and scriptural illumination is given. So Christ continues his work as mediator in his state of exaltation. Pastor Mike is going to hit that. Next week, you get that, get that munis triplex on. You know what I'm saying? Boom. Perusia, Acts, we already read this, but check it. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This is the point. Here's the, here's the Perusia, okay? Here. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He's coming back in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. Because Christ was a public person and accomplished his work publicly, justice required that his exaltation should also ultimately be a public matter. Every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. He was publicly slain and treated as a, a criminal and condemned by the state. He will one day be publicly exalted by his friends and his enemies and acclaimed Lord. Perfect justice will be exacted every wrong made right, every saint publicly vindicated in their union with him. One day, your union right now may be tough. Our brothers and sisters in China who are being, who are being systematically persecuted for real by the state, one day, 
they're going to show up in glory, being vindicated in their union with Christ. Their union with Christ in seed form now will flower in public glorification with him. That's a powerful thing. You may not feel it right now, American Christian. But when you're in a situation like many of our brothers and sisters around the globe, that means everything. That means everything. This is the best way I can kind of capture the parousia, okay? And this comes from uh, an Advent hymn, okay? And when we talk about Advent, we just came through Advent. We look for his, you know, look back to his first coming. We expect his coming every Sunday through the word and sacraments. And we look forward to his future coming, the parousia, okay? Listen to this hymn. You know this one? Lo, he comes with clouds descending. Once for our salvation slain, thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Hallelujah, hallelujah. God appears on earth to reign. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who said it not and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Every island, sea, and mountain, heaven and earth shall flee away. All who hate him must confounded hear the trump proclaim the day. Come to judgment, come to judgment, come to judgment, come away. Now redemption long expected, see in solemn pomp appear, and his saints by men rejected, coming with him in the air. Alleluia, 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 see the day of God appear. Yea, amen, let all adore thee, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. Oh, come quickly. Oh, come quickly. Hallelujah. Come, Lord, come. Why does this matter? Beyond being a pattern for us, an obvious pattern for us, that if we're to follow Christ, we must take the low place and wait for God to give us the high place. Those who humble themselves shall be exalted. That's what Peter said after watching the life of Christ and, and testifying as an apostolic witness. But even more than that, each of these states not only instructs and, and captivates and directs us, but it's also good news. The good news comes in each of these stages. Let's conclude with some thoughts. Christ's whole life was lived in the service of the office to which the Father appointed him as mediator. And never for one moment did he live for himself. Think about that. Never for one moment did he think about himself or live for himself, but always for his father and for his church, for us. That's what his entire life was lived for. In Christ, we see prophetic truth in which he brings his people back to the covenant fulfilled on their behalf. In Christ, we see priestly mercy to sinners of every stripe, diverse afflictions, and manifold weaknesses who are altogether helpless. In Christ, we see kingly power over Satan, 
the world, sin, and all their operations. The pattern that we witness in Christ is of ultimate and immediate significance for us. The pattern we witness in Christ is of ultimate and immediate significance for us individually and ecclesiologically as the church. We trust Christ, follow Christ, and are united to Christ. Our lives are so inextricably bound up with him that it's paramount for us to see ourselves in him. Identity. All of these things should shape our identity of not only who we are, but who we long to be and what we want to become. What do we want to become? Are we prematurely grasping for an exaltation and rejecting the humiliation? Are we about upward mobility, forgetting that Jesus was about downward mobility? Are we trying to exalt ourselves? Or are we waiting in humility for the Father to exalt us? As Christ began, so we began a product of the love and miraculous power of God. Some of you have been to counseling and gotten therapy, and they talk about family origins and the way that family origins shapes how you are and who you are and, and what, you're, what you've become. Think about what it means to be of this family origin in union with Christ. As it went for Christ, it goes for us with all of the challenges, sufferings, promises, and glories. The diversity of life that Christ experienced. Now, we don't experience it to the degree that he does. But he says, in this life, you will have trouble. He says, if they hated me, they will hate you. And there is something of, of knowing Christ we can only know through suffering and union with him and in faithfulness to him. It, may, it, it will bring us into conflict with the world at times. We will not always be able to have everybody in the culture like us. And we must not fear reprisal from the culture when they disdain or despise what it is that we believe about the gospel. The end of Christ is the end of his people. And by end, I mean the telos. Where he, where he wound up is where we wind up. The church militant shall become the church triumphant in union with Christ. The good news of his incarnation is that there is a new nearness, solidarity, and identification with us in his humiliation and in his exaltation. The good news of his sufferings, he has sympathy with us. There, there is not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. Jesus knows all about our troubles he will guide till the day is done. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. When you think no one understands, when your friends don't seem to get it, there is one who gets to the uttermost what it's like to be afflicted, to be lonely, to be misunderstood, to feel the weight of the world, to have anxieties pressing in on him, to feel like everyone's against him, to feel like things just aren't working. He knows, he understands. If Jesus can go through all of this in order to reconcile, now here's another thing. If Jesus can go through all of this to reconcile with sinners, then you and I can go through much less to reconcile with the saints. You see what I'm saying? We have reconciling work to do as the people of God. And sometimes we get so 
on our high horse about, you know, those Christians. We don't want to identify with them. And, you know, they're just knuckleheads. And, you know, I can't believe them and all this kind of stuff. Look, if Jesus can go through all this to reconcile with us as sinners, then we can go through the lesser things to reconcile and identify with our brothers and sisters who even disagree with us, even those who we disagree with. Because that's the kind of family he's called us to. And they are a person for whom he has shed his blood and gone through all of this. If, if this doesn't get you to place a premium and a value on the image bearers around you, I don't know what will. To have the mind of Christ with respect to the people around us is to, is to look at the great cost and suffering and humiliation that he was willing to endure in order to make them the the, the, the light of his life in order to clean them and restore. If that's the kind of love with which he loves them and that's the kind of love with which he's loved you, does he expect you to love any less towards your fellow redeemed? No. Don't get quiet on me now, y'all. The good news of his death and burial, substitution and satisfaction, doom changed into a doorway. Jesus has defeated death. The death of Jesus was the death of all our fears. Jesus condemned death to the grave, y'all. He flipped it, jujitsu on him. The good news of his descent into hell, ultimate fear is destroyed. He's taken the fear out of, out of that judgment because he's been judged himself. The good news of his resurrection, vindication, receipt of payment has has been acknowledged by God the Father, and it's the down payment of the world to come. That's what the resurrection is. It's a receipt of payment, and it's a down payment. Public exaltation follows public humiliation. Further, how can you have secure confidence in your justification, your renewal, your glorification? The resurrection is the justification of Christ, and that's when our justification will come to full flowering. We will be justified fully and truly. This is what Jesus, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys to death and Hades. You know what, me, what it means when you have the keys of something? You have the authority of it, authority over it. You open and shut it. The good news of his ascension, the disciples watch a real man, yet no mere man, ascend into heaven and rule them and intercede for them which gives assurance of his sympathy and the father's welcome. The father's welcoming human beings there because Jesus has blazed the trail. The same heaven that opened itself to receive Christ cannot remain closed to those who are united to him. The inhabitants of heaven will be embodied, holistic salvation, more solid than now. And this does not negate the idea that heaven comes down to earth too, y'all, Okay. The good news of his session, the loving savior we beheld on earth is the very one who has been enthroned. He loves us no less in heaven than he did on earth. You may not, you, I mean, we can't see what's going on up there. There's one person who got a peep and it was Stephen. He saw the son of man standing at the right hand. Isn't that beautiful? All of the scriptures say that Jesus is seated. But Jesus, he stood up because he watched his martyr and welcomed him home. 
That's how Jesus dignifies and honors his beloved. He stood up. It is the same, the same loving Savior we beheld on earth that who is enthroned. It's the coronation of this king. It's the giving of his spirit and power to this church. It's power for mission. His continual intercession and defense. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost. Consequently, because he ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Listen to this. You ain't heard a better word than this today. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for them, for you, for us. There's a line from this hymn. It's it's called, I know that my redeemer lives. Glory, hallelujah. And the first line of the third verse says, he lives to bless me with his love. Glory, hallelujah. He lives to plead for me above. Glory, hallelujah. He lives for, you know how you say, oh, I live for that. He lives for that, but he lives for that. That is, that is good news, y'all. That is good. He rules in royal authority. The good news of his parousia, glory lies before us. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's what you can look forward to. When he appears, you will be like him. If you've been longing for his appearing and knowing that that will be the case right now should do a transforming work in you at this moment. At the Perusia, listen, justice will roll down like waters. Amos asked for it. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like streams. But in the Perusia, justice will roll down like waters. All of those who have done evil. All of those who have created destructive systems that oppress people. Think about the life that some people are living around the world. Boko Haram has gotten a hold of the government. Folks who are living under terror. All of that will be undone at the Perusia. Everyone, everyone who propagates evil, they will be in terror. It will be, they will receive it back on their heads in that day. And so we, listen, because of the Perusia, you don't have to seek revenge and you can leave room for the wrath of God. You don't need to try and execute it for him. He will handle that. So for now, you can live in love. That's all I got. Thanks for your kind attention. Uh, If you have any questions, come find me after this. Receive this benediction, this blessing over your life. May the love of God our Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the transforming power of the Holy Spirit rest, rule, and abide with you as you go from this place. 
Don't slip and fall in the snow. Peace.